I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Oh, y'all, I'm going to be real with you. It is 3.10 p.m. Pacific time on a Monday, and I am finally recording this episode. I gotta be real with you. I've barely been home Um, since I uploaded the episode on Friday. I've been nonstop. I've been working a bunch, so I did my best to give quality research in a short amount of time, but unfortunately, because I would rather push the episode than rush the research that I do and not make as quality of content as I would like to, I decided to push it as much as I could, but I literally got up at 8 a.m. this morning and worked until about 12.30. I did take a quick break to go and get my hair cut. It was my first time getting a haircut since last November and my hair feels so much better and I really needed to take that break anyways. And now I'm back. I finished up my notes. I'm feeling well prepared and I have an hour until I have to leave again. So let's get this done. This week, I decided to dig a little deeper into something that we've spoken about more broadly in the past. Keegan and I did a live show where we were talking about witches and magic at once, and we've also discussed 
which is in another episode, I believe, on the show. I know that we did a like feminist faves, which is at some point in the past. Uh, but we have mentioned the Salem witch trials probably every single time we've ever mentioned witches, period, on the show. And being someone that is a major theater lover, I've always been a really big fan of the play The Crucible. I remember acting out scenes from The Crucible when I was in high school in my drama class and then watching the movie afterward with Winona Ryder. And I love Winona Ryder. So anything she was in, I was like totally on board. And I really, really enjoyed it. I love the salaciousness of it. Uh, You know, it's very fictionalized, as you will come to find as I discuss all of this for anybody who is particularly familiar with the play and movie adaptation. I will be discussing it more as I go along. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. But today, we are going to dig a little bit deeper into the Salem Witch Trials. Now, there's no way that I'm going to be able to cover Every trial, every person, every event, uh, I would be here all day and so would you. So I kind of picked out the things that jumped out the most to me about this time and we're going to talk about that. So the actual Salem witch trials began in Salem Village, Massachusetts in the summer of 1692, but these accusations came from a long time of much turmoil. The official, quote, age of witch hunts began around 1400 and lasted through the American Revolution in both Europe and its colonies. About half of the accused people at this time were executed, and around 80% of those executed were women. This was most likely due to the publication of a book that we've talked about a few times in the past as well. I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong. Malus Maleficarum, translated to The Hammer of Witches, which was written by two well-respected German Dominicans in 1486, which spurred much of the mania that would follow. In the book, essentially, is a guide on how to identify, hunt, and interrogate witches. The book states that women are more likely to participate in witchcraft for a number of reasons. One, being they're prone to believing, meaning they're stupid. Two, their emotions fluctuate more than men's. They're unstable. Three, they lack physical strength. They see sorcery as their source of strength instead. The book also showed diagrams and describes how moles, growths, and more than two nipples on the body was a sign of witchcraft. Women were also particularly accused because of the way society viewed women and gender norms at the time. Biblical doctrine taught that women were, quote, weaker vessels and therefore more susceptible to Satan's wiles. It was also more often older women who were accused because much of women's worth was tied to her fertility. Society saw no need for women who couldn't procreate. As we'll discuss, many of the accusers were young women and girls, and historians believe that this could have a lot to do with internalized misogyny because of how these elderly women were treated. You know, they knew that one day they were going to grow up, they were going to be treated the same way, maybe their value was going to be lesser in society, and that really scared them. And so they really did hold the same beliefs of these elderly women as the men around them did. Going even further back to Europe in the early modern period, they had rigid gender stereotypes and expectations, and those who didn't adhere to these expectations would suffer the consequences. Many of the women that would be accused of witchcraft stepped out of their expected roles, and women who showed more overt sexuality were particularly spotted. 
And it wasn't just women who lived on like the fringes of society. Even women who did feel that they abided by society's expectations started to get nervous. So they would then accuse other women before suspicion fell on themselves. Let's talk a little bit about the history of Salem Village. Salem Village was created out of a desire to create a Christian utopia for Puritans. The land was originally occupied by members of the Pawtucket tribe and about 200 natives lived in the Salem Village area. But due to an epidemic from 1616 to 1619, the native population of Salem was reduced to about 50 people. John Endicott became one of the town's first settlers in 1632 when he established a 300-acre orchard farm. In 1638, Salem Town granted the rights to several people to establish a village, Salem Village. On October 8, 1672, Salem Village officially separated itself from Salem Town as a parish. So it was kind of like a church-run town and was granted the authority to hire a minister, build a meeting house, and collect taxes for public improvements. However, it wasn't easy for Salem Village to find a minister that they liked. They went through three ministers within 16 years. The ministers were often found in conflict with their parishioners who refused to pay their salary, provide firewood for them, or keep up with renovations at the church, and so on, so they would eventually leave. One of these former ministers was George Burroughs, who served as the minister of Salem Village from 1681 to 1683. Funnily enough, or I guess not so funnily enough, George would actually be accused of witchcraft during the mania years later. When George Burroughs stepped down, a man named Samuel Paris became the minister of Salem Village in 1688. I'm going to refer to him as Sam a lot because I didn't like writing out Samuel every time I referred to him in my notes, and Sam is believed by many to be one of the main causes of the witch trials, according to historians. Sam was given a house to live in, and he had control of the surrounding land, and he and his wife, Elizabeth, and their daughters, Betty and Susanna, along with his niece, Abigail Williams, and one of their enslaved, Tituba, lived in the house. Tituba's husband, John Indian, also came along with them. Sam Paris is a real dick. He had a long history in the slave trade. He took over his father's sugar plantation in Barbados after he passed away, which is where he met Tituba and her husband, John Indian, and he then brought them to the American colonies. It wasn't an easy time for Sam to step in as minister. Clearly, the ministers did not have the best track record in this town. Sam was also a very power-hungry man. He set his sights on making a name for himself in Salem Village, it seems. In January 1692, 9-year-old Betty and 11-year-old Abigail began having uncontrollable fits of screaming and crying out in pain. This worried Sam, so he called out to the local doctor, William Griggs, to come in and examine the girls. Since Griggs couldn't find anything else wrong with the girls, he diagnosed them with bewitchment. When asked who bewitched them, the girls blamed none other than Tituba. Some scholars believe that Tituba had learned some of the things that would have been seen as witchcraft when she was living in Barbados, thinking her mistress allegedly taught her techniques to ward herself from evil. It's theorized then that she would have shared some of this knowledge with Betty and Abigail, leading them to use witchcraft as a tool for retaliation. Although I think another big reason why Abigail and Betty would use something as witchcraft as an excuse for what they were experiencing could, could have something to do with the way that Sam Paris preached. 
Once Tituba was accused, she was interrogated until she, quote, confessed. Now remember, every time I say confessed from here on out, I'm going to be saying it with quotation marks around it. She was interrogated until she confessed to being a witch. In her confession, she said that she spoke with the devil who ordered her to worship him and hurt the children of Salem Village. But then apparently she said to Sam Paris, but hey, I'm a good witch, not a bad witch. And she was actually trying to protect the girls. Tituba then went on to name two co-accomplices, Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne. By deflecting blame away from herself, she could possibly displace punishment and even death. She was also proven as a credible witness, which would make her survival paramount. Tituba's confession also contained many of the common archetypes that we think of when we think of witches, such as flying broomsticks, cats, wolves, and other animal spirits that were taunting people. It wasn't until after the trials had concluded that Tituba would share that Samuel Paris had beaten a confession out of her, and that she was, obviously, innocent of witchcraft. By March of 1692, Sam Paris was convinced that witches had overtaken Salem Village. He would preach to his congregation often about the witches among them, stirring fear and paranoia in the town. Because of this, Sam Paris is seen as one of the biggest contributors to the coming hysteria. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cashback is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of the 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. At the end of March, Abigail claimed to have seen witches having a ceremony where she saw them drinking blood and eating flesh. She named Elizabeth Proctor and Sarah Cloyce as being present at the ceremony. Elizabeth Proctor and her husband John are notable names from the Salem Witch Trials, probably thanks to Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible. 
Miller's version tells a fictitious story of John Proctor having an affair with Abigail Williams, who is 17 in Miller's version. So Abigail tells the town that Elizabeth is a witch so she can be with John. In all actuality, there was no affair, thank goodness, as the actual Abigail was about 11 years old at the time. After Elizabeth was accused, John fiercely defended his wife, which led to accusations to turn to him as well. John was then hanged on August 19, 1692. Elizabeth was also convicted and sentenced to death, but she was pregnant and gave birth soon to a son in jail, who was named John after her husband. After the trials, Elizabeth was eventually set free from jail, but her life was full of struggle after that. In the eyes of the law, since she was sentenced to death, she technically didn't even exist anymore. This made it impossible for her to receive any sort of dowry because she wasn't a person. She also couldn't gain her deceased husband's property, as even if she were alive, women couldn't inherit land. And there were no possessions left for her to sell either, as they had been taken and sold off before the couple was even sentenced and jailed. Elizabeth Proctor finally regained her status as a living human person in April of 1697. Thank goodness. I wrote a long list in my notebook that started at the very top of the page and went to the very bottom, and that list is filled of all of the people that Abby and Betty would go on to accuse in the coming months. Although there was one other notable girl that I wanted to mention as she's brought up briefly later on in my notes, and that is Anne Putnam Jr. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the women that Tituba had accused because they are also some notable names from the Salem Witch Trials. So the first was Sarah Good, and I'm going to refer to them by their last names because they're both Sarahs. Sarah Good was born to a wealthy family but lost both of her parents at a young age, and like I mentioned earlier, land and money weren't inherited to women, they were not especially inherited to daughters, and when she got married, she and her husband had to sell all of their possessions to survive, and they would eventually beg around Salem Village for help. Apparently, not only was Good poor, but she was also rude. How very dare she. One story says that Samuel Paris once offered her charity and she was incredibly curt with him in response. A couple who had given Good a place to live for a time described her as, quote, so turbulent a spirit, spiteful, and so maliciously bent. Jesus Christ. Betty and Abby also accused Good's spirit of pinching them and otherwise abusing them. It didn't help that it seems her own husband thought she was a witch. Yikes. During Good's trial, her young accusers would rock back and forth and cry out in pain in a grand display for the judges as soon as they saw the defendant. In one girl's testimony, she says that Good tried to kill her, and that she even had a broken part of the knife to prove it. She then pulled the knife out to show the court. In a true act of comedy, a man in the gallery stood up and was like, Hey, that's my knife! I broke it yesterday! I even have the other part of the knife to prove it! Tituba testified that Good had ordered her cat to attack the young girl, Elizabeth Hubbard, causing bite and scratch marks on the girl's body. When it came for Sarah Good to come to her own defense, she turned the accusations to her co-defendants, Tituba and Sarah Osborne. Good was then convicted and sentenced to be executed. She was pregnant at the time of the trials, which delayed her death. While she was alive in jail, she openly proclaimed her innocence. But the baby passed away soon after, and Good was hanged. 
Sarah Osborne was accused probably because she was not a particularly devoutly religious woman, at least not in the exterior. She hadn't gone to church much in the past three years due to an illness, and many historians now suspect that that illness was depression, which is absolutely maddening to me that she would have such horrible accusations thrown at her because of a mental health problem. She also dodged the norms of the town when she remarried an indentured servant. The fact that she remarried, and to an indentured servant nonetheless, was, in, was unthinkable to the people of Salem. She was also seen as a gold digger for trying to receive money from her first husband after he passed away. Osborne was imprisoned and sentenced to death, and she too never stopped proclaiming her innocence. But the thing that made her stand out from the rest was that she never named or accused anyone else of witchcraft. She was believed to be 49 years old when she died in jail in May of 1692. The court's official conviction was that of Bridget Bishop on June 2, 1692. This was actually Bridget's second time being accused of witchcraft in her life, the first time being a decade earlier, but she was acquitted for lack of evidence. This time, she was accused for being, quote, elderly, poor, and argumentative. I'd be fucked. She was hanged on June 10th on what would go on to be called Gallows Hill. Reading about Bridget, she seemed like a pretty dope person. She was disliked for being seen as unfeminine at the time. She and her husband ran two taverns together, which wasn't a common thing for a woman to take part in, and she also dressed in bright, colorful, and in their words, exotic clothing that was unbecoming. Bridget was also subjected to examinations that would become commonplace in the trials. These exams looked for things such as moles or third nipples, as described in the Malleus Maleficarum book. During her first examination, Bridget was found to have had an extra nipple, but then when they looked over it a second time, it wasn't found. Five more women were hanged in close succession after Bridget in July, then five more in August, and eight more in September. That's 18 women killed in one summer. One man, Giles Corey, was pressed to death after refusing to receive a plea of guilty. He was accused after his wife, Martha. September would be the last month that anyone convicted of witchcraft would be hanged, thankfully. But many others would still go on to be tortured and treated badly in jail, and many of them would go on to die in jail as well. Throughout the winter and into spring, more and more trials would occur, and much more conversation among residents began to emerge, discussing how the trials have affected their village. The last trial was held in May of 1693. Throughout the trial, there was one respected minister by the name of Cotton Mather, great name, who had warned about the validity of spectral evidence during the trials. Cotton's father was the president at Harvard, and he later joined his son in voicing his concerns about the use of spectral evidence, which had slowly begun to convince more and more people. The logic of this makes sense to me. Belief in magic of any kind at its core is against any puritanical Christian beliefs, so by using spectral evidence in a religious-based court seems like a bit of an oxymoron to me. In January 1697, the Massachusetts General Court declared a day of fasting to repent for the tragedy of the trials. When they concluded, victims' families and supporters sought to establish their innocence and gain compensation for what happened to them. In the following centuries, the descendants of these victims continued to fight for exoneration and compensation. 
all of the victims' loved ones and family members would receive some sort of recognition finally by May of 2001 when Massachusetts legislature finally passed an act exonerating all who had been convicted. Although it took centuries for more legal recognizance, repentance was evident within Salem Village shortly after the final trial. One of the primary accusers that I mentioned briefly earlier, Ann Putnam Jr., publicly asked the church for forgiveness. She claimed she hadn't acted out of malice, but had been, quote, deluded by Satan into denouncing innocent people. This apology was accepted. As for Tituba, Sam Paris refused to ever pay her jail fees to set her free. I'm assuming jail fees would be similar to bond. She unfortunately remained in jail after everyone else had been paid out. As was par the course then, she was sold once again in April of 1693 to someone who offered to pay her fees. I can't imagine the next portion of her life would go on to be much better than the last. The only silver lining is that Puritans usually kept enslaved couples together, so she would remain with her husband, John Indian. Luckily, Sam Paris's life turned into a living hell after this. I, for one, will hold Sam responsible for so much of what occurred. He fervently defended his twisted beliefs, caused chaos to ensue, and is responsible for the loss of many women's lives. As for the women who weren't killed, he oversaw the excommunication of them, leaving them with no support or resources to rely upon. Sam was sued over and over again by the people of Salem Village following the trials. He would often then fire countersuits, and the charade would go on and on. His opponents protested by refusing to attend services at his church, putting his livelihood at stake. To make matters worse in this area, from 1694 to 1697, Sam was only paid half of his salary due to all the fighting. The court finally found the witch trials to be unlawful in 1702, and that was when all of the rest of those who had been convicted were released from jail, except for Tituba. In October 1711, the general court passed a bill reversing the judgment against 22 people listed in a 1709 petition. Monetary compensation was doled out that December to those 22 people as well. They were given a sum of money to be divided amongst them. It's amazing to me that from the 1700s all the way through 2001, there really wasn't a lot of progress made in recognition and compensation of the victim's family and loved ones of the Salem Witch Trials. To close out, I have a couple of things. On why women have been historically categorized as witches, journalist Heather Green has written, It's not only a derogatory label that's associated with women, it's also a term that's been used to define all of the evil aspects of femininity. This makes me think about my own experience as a woman. I think of the times that my womanness has made me the bad guy. I've either been too masculine or too feminine in the eyes of different people, either being one of the guys being a good thing or, you know, not acting ladylike enough or anything like that. I've also seen the wrath of men who I refuse to sleep with. I've been disbelieved when I spoke the truth about myself and my experiences. And all of these things are justified in this world because I present as a woman. I also think about things like revenge porn, the women who report their sexual assault and it isn't believed, how the poor are seen as inferior and in less need of our care and support. I think of trans women whose lives are endangered for being themselves. These are all the current witch hunts that we experience today. 
That ended up being much shorter than I expected it to be, but I hope all of you understand as I am still a one-woman show at the moment. I actually wanted to talk to you all about that. If you think that there is anyone that you admire in your life that holds similar views to the show, that has some experience in, you know, whether it be voiceover, radio, acting, or anything that would be uh, somewhat equivalent to experience with podcasting, please send me a message and let me know because I am definitely still on the hunt for a new co-host. I'm still fervently looking along as often as I can. But like I mentioned earlier in the episode, I work seven days a week and I do all of the research and recording and editing and producing of this podcast on my own right now. So uh, time even to look for other people has been a little bit tight and I really appreciate all of your patience and understanding and support during this time. I feel like you probably think I'm a broken record for repeating it over and over again, but I, I truly appreciate all of your understanding and love through this through this difficult difficult time if you have any topic ideas i've been receiving a lot of really wonderful ones please go ahead and email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or dm me on instagram at angry neighborhood feminist y'all have also been so great about rating and reviewing everywhere if you want to rate us on spotify that is an option if you haven't left a review on apple Podcasts, that is also one of the best ways that you can support this show Be sure to rate the show five stars and leave a quick sentence about why you enjoyed the show. All right, well, that is all I have for you today. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Can one great big idea actually change the world? First-term Congressman Seth McGuire wants to find out. With a star-studded cast featuring Patrick J. Adams, Kate Walsh, Shanola Hampton, Ming-Na Wen, and Lawrence Fishburne, America 2.0 is a six-part scripted series about one man's quest to transform this country by giving every American citizen one million dollars. Seth is an unflinching idealist, so it should come as no surprise that he's completely ill-equipped to navigate D.C.'s political treachery. On Capitol Hill, even the wildest dreamers have to learn how to play the game. Can his bold and revolutionary plan really save this country, or is he going to talk himself right out of office? To find out, tune in to America 2.0, available wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can learn more at realm.fm.